Genesis 2.18, and reading down to verse 25. And I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and to be reading along with me this morning. Let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask him to bless especially the preaching and hearing of his word. Father, we are so grateful for every single word that you have breathed out. We are grateful for how your words, Lord Jesus, they are spirit and they are life. We know that this portion in front of us is spirit and life and that there are purposes that you wish to accomplish in sending it out to us. And so make us attentive, make us to be focused this morning, remove distractions from us, our Father. We pray that what we hear would be for the good of our souls and that we would be built up in Christ and that we would know him more and love him more and know more of your great love for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please accomplish your purposes in us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 2.18, Moses now writes, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, or suitable or comparable to him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with the flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife we're both naked and we're not ashamed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if I asked you this morning, you can't cheat, you can't get an iPhone out, a smartphone out and cheat, but if I asked you this morning, what are the first ever recorded words spoken by a human, what would they be? I actually had never thought about this. I had never thought about what are the first recorded words ever spoken by a person. The first recorded words ever spoken by a person were the words of Adam when God brought Eve to him and he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. How marvelous that those are the first words that God gives us in the scriptures. There's something wonderful about the marvel of the creation of the woman and the marital union that God brings about and the first recorded human words that God gives us by inspiration of his spirit have to do with that marital union. Now that's important. And we're going to hear this morning why. Because the whole storyline of the Bible is the storyline of marriage. The whole storyline of the Bible is the storyline of why God instituted marriage. What were God's purposes of marriage and creation? Why did God do what he did? Why did he do it the way that he did it? Let me say this this morning. This is not mythological. This is history. This is fact. This is not a mythopoetic way of you understanding why we have two sexes and why we have an institution of marriage. This is how 
marriage came to be, and we're going to see this morning two things. First, we're going to see the origin of marriage, and then secondly, we're going to see the purpose of marriage. Well, notice that Adam is in the garden. He is God's prophet, priest, and king. He is there to take dominion. God has already given him creation mandates. God has said, you can eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it. In dying, you will die. He has given Adam every blessing. He has loaded that sacred space with the best things for Adam. We can't even imagine what it would be like. And yet something was missing. You know, it's interesting that not only does Genesis 2 give us the first recorded words of a human being, but it also is the first time that we read the words, it was not good. Very interesting. Up till this point, chapter 1, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. It is not good for man to be alone. And something was missing. The garden was missing something. It was incomplete. Jonathan Edwards will actually say that it was imperfect. It was imperfect. It was incomplete. God did not say, it is good after creating man. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. The Lord had made Adam out of the dust of the ground. In a sense, he had put his face down and he had kissed the dust and he had breathed life into Adam and he had brought Adam into this world. And we've seen the dignity of man, and we've seen also the, the humility of man, the creatureliness of man, and yet man is the crown of God's creatures. He is the lord of the lower worlds. He is the, the God's vice regent. God gave him this world to tend and to manage and to garden and to cultivate and to protect, and we talked about all those things, and yet something's missing. And so it's interesting that no sinner does God give Adam as the prophet that command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and as a king, that command to work the ground and to, and to tend it and to keep it, that now the Lord says in verse 18, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. The first thing that we have to see is that marriage originates with God. It's God's idea. The marriage was not something that human society evolutionarily came up with and said, well, I like the opposite sex. We benefit each other. This is good for society. We can start these things called families. Let's call it a marriage. Let's contract together. I'll stay with you. You stay with me. I don't want you over there with that dude. <laughs> I don't know why you're with me. <laughs> but Thank you. <laughs> Let's contract. I don't want to lose you. I mean, I think that's pretty much how the world thinks about marriage. <laughs> that's pretty much the extent of it. Marriage originated with God. It was God's intention. It was God's design. In fact, the whole passage is permeated with the fact that marriage flows out of the mind and the heart and the goodness of God, and then it's loaded and invested with purpose and meaning and significance, that it is, it is arguably the most important thing that happens in creation. And there's tons of purposes to it, we'll see. But it's very interesting, isn't it, that the Lord is the one. God says, he looks down and he sees Adam, and there's a sacred loneliness in Adam. I don't know who coined that phrase. I like that. There's a, a sinless and a sacred loneliness. Adam will feel that loneliness. As Adam, in, as the king in the garden goes out to fulfill that dominion mandate in naming the animals, which probably is 
him looking at them and observing what they're doing and, and thinking God's thoughts after him and realizing what God has made. And, and as he is there in the garden and he is the king in the garden and he is the priest in the garden and he is the prophet in the garden, he's going to realize that something's not right, something's missing. And, and God is telling us something was missing. Verse 18, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper. And I like the word comparable for him, comparable for him. I will make it. And then notice that we see something else highlighted that this is God's doing. Notice this, verse 21. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with the flesh and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Adam is there in the garden and he's looking around and as he's exploring God's world and he is trying to fulfill the dominion mandate. He's working just like you go to work every day, he, but he has a much better environment and he doesn't have any crazy employees to contend with. And he is there and he is tending the garden and he is seeing the glory of God and he is doing what God has told him. God has said, it's not good for man to be alone. Adam's in the garden. He's looking around. He says, he sees a male zebra and he sees a female zebra. He sees a male tiger, and he sees, I don't know if there's a male tiger, I'm terrible at science. He sees, he sees a male and a female of every kind, and he realizes that God has already built in this multiplication and reproduction and procreation idea into the created order and, and for all the other creatures, and, and he's looking around, and, and he's heard God say already, be fruitful and multiply. Well, wait, how can that happen? The animals are doing it, but I can't do it, and there's no one to help me. And Adam feels his insufficiency. Man felt his insufficiency, and he realized that there was something missing. And so we see that this is God's doing because the Lord doesn't say to Adam, well, watch what I'll do. Stand here, and you can participate in this. God puts him to sleep, causes a deep sleep to fall on him, God, like a skillful surgeon, goes in and removes part of Adam, one bone, and just as he created man out of the dust and used things that he brought about out of nothing, he now takes part of man and he makes woman. And it's beautiful, the language in the Hebrew, man, we don't read the name Adam here, man is ish, and woman is isha. She is out of man. And then we see that it's the divine origin in that he presents her to man that from start to finish, it's God's idea, it's God's doing, God has a purpose in it. Marriage is God's ordained institution loaded with his blessing, his doing, his idea, his work. And, um, and Moses is intent to tell us that Adam, in a sense, when he wakes up, acknowledges that this is the best thing God has done. He acknowledges that what God has done is the best thing God could have done. There's actually intimation that because of the, the, the lines and the, the poetic structure of she is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, that he would have said this with the most utter astonishment as he beheld the most beautiful, unfalling creature God has ever made. And he realizes that God has put the cherry on top in the creation of the woman. And God has put his stamp of approval now. Creation is done. It's the 
the last thing that God says. And the first words out of Adam's mouth, he, he recognizes that God has done this amazing thing. Notice he recognizes that the woman comes out of the man there in his statement. This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, because she was taken out of man. She was made specially by God. It's, it's so remarkable that God made this magnificent, glorious, beautiful creature when he made the woman, and he brought her to the man. But we have to ask the question, secondly, we have to ask that question, why? Why did God, why did God do that? I mean, clearly you could, you could start to piece together different things, and you could say, well, you know, um, God is... Uh, giving Adam someone to help keep him company because it would really stink if you had all the possessions in the world and you lived in a magnificent castle in the UK and you had gardens and you had no one to share that with. And you were there alone. And you had everything, but you were alone. It's actually the saddest, it's actually the saddest picture of man, those lonely, angry men who have spent their lives running after laying hold of everything, or women who have done that, and they end up lonely and have no one. They have all the bounty, but they don't have any of the companionship. You know, this is actually a very important point. God lives in social fellowship with himself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit live in perfect, unbroken fellowship from all eternity. The Father delights in the Son. The Son delights in the Father. The Spirit is the mutual agent of the love of the Father and the Son, and, and every person in the Godhead is infinitely rejoicing in himself. I know, you can't get your mind around it. It's true. He is a personal God, and he's living in that, that unity in, in diversity. He has three persons in one God, and so he creates a world that has unity and diversity. He creates a man, and he will bring out of him mankind, unity. But he brings diversity by bringing the woman. And he brings her to the man to be a companion. And she is not his servant. She's not a, a lesser being. There's nothing in the text at all that intimates whatsoever that the woman is below the man at all. In fact, everything about the passage shows that God has brought him someone comparable to him who will be with him. And I think there are several other reasons why God, God does this. First, I think that God's purpose in marriage, in creating marriage, is that Adam needed a wife to fulfill him, to fulfill mankind's purpose on earth and God's creational mandates. Let's think through this quickly. Adam needed a wife to fulfill him, to fulfill mankind's purpose on earth and God's creational mandates. Adam was insufficient. Adam, though he is the head of all humanity, we fell in Adam, not in Eve. He's the head. He's the federal head. He was God's prophet, priest, and king. He needed a queen. He could not fulfill the creational mandates. He could not be fruitful and multiply without a helpmate comparable to him. The only way Adam could fulfill the dominion mandate of populating the earth and turning the world into the garden. That's, remember we said that. That's, that was the goal, that Adam was to obey and he was to fulfill the demands that God had given him, the creational ordinances, and there was no way that Adam could do that without Eve. He needed Eve. Eve was the only one who complete, could complete Adam. 
God had actually taken a part of Adam out of him, created woman, brought her to him, united them together, and she and only she, among all the creatures, could be a fulfilling partner to him. He needed her. He needed her to fulfill him. He needed her to fulfill his purpose on earth, and he needed her to help fulfill God's creational mandates. I think that um, the idea of fulfillment really comes in the idea of covenant blessing. And remember, we said that when God pronounces that blessing, it is good. He's not just saying, oh, this is good. He's saying it is full of blessing. And then when he looks at the man, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so by bringing Eve to Adam, he is, he is pronouncing covenant blessing. The marriage relationship is that covenant blessing. You see how God uses this in Israel's history. That one of the things he does in the old covenant era until the coming of Redeemer is he works in that nation and, it, and it's through reproduction and it's through the family that true religion is to be preserved and to be carried out and the nations are to, to, to see the light of the gospel in Israel. Yes, they failed. But the, the marriage relationship was at the center of God's purposes in redemptive history. In fact, and we'll get to this at the end, the Redeemer comes through... The woman, the Redeemer comes, the one who alone can fulfill us, comes from the one that God created to help fulfill originally her husband in the garden. Well, I think we also see that God is teaching that woman is equal to man as an image bearer. Thomas Goodwin, listen to this, suggested that Eve was taken out of the rib of Adam to show the equality of the wife to the husband. And you know these quotes, perhaps. She was not taken out of his foot, but out of his side, because she is to be a companion to him. Matthew Henry, in that very famous quote, said the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. I love that. You can say that's allegorizing. I don't care. That's beautiful. And it's true. Whether, that's, whether God intended that or not, I think he may have. The Puritans had all kinds of insights we don't have. And I'll never have, unless we read them. <laughs> God didn't take her from a place of superiority or inferiority. He took her out of him, and he brought her to him. And his purpose was to show her that he needed, he needed a helpmate comparable to him. Now, that being said, because... This passage is almost never preached in our day. I think feminist egalitarianism and misogynistic abuses have led everyone to just run as, as a thousand miles away from this passage. And it's one of the most magnificent passages because it's interesting. If we take it and we look at it and we see the purposes of God, God is not only teaching man that he needed woman to help fulfill him. He's not only teaching him that he needed her to help fulfill the, the dominion mandate and the creation mandate, and he's not only teaching her, him that she will be comparable and equal to him as an image bearer, but he is teaching both man and woman that they are both exalted and humiliated. They have both exaltation and humility in creation before the fall. Now you may say, how is that possible? Man is created with exaltation because he was made first 
and was given the charge to be the provider and the protector. That's man's exaltation. His role is that of being the head in the marital relationship. That's his role. That is his, that is his function. It doesn't make him better than woman. It's, it's a different function. His exaltation is that he was made first, and he was given the demand to protect and to provide. Adam was created with humility because he needed Eve to fulfill him. He could not do what God wanted him to do without her. You see, exaltation, humility. Additionally, um, he needed Eve to fulfill him and God's creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. We've talked about that. There's man's humility at creation. Exaltation, humility. Now, where's woman's exaltation and creation? Well, Eve was created with exaltation because she alone could fulfill Adam. And she alone could help him together they would fulfill the creational mandate. There's her exaltation. Where's her humility? Well, her humility is that she was created under the headship of her husband. In this way, God was reminding man and woman that though they were image bearers, and this is the important cash value of this because so many people paint a very skewed picture of marital relationships and what they're to look like, and everybody's falling off on both sides of the ditches. Why does God create woman to be exalted and humbled and man to be exalted and humbled in that original state, in their relationship? God is again teaching man that though he is exalted over all creation and that though he is exalted over all the animals and that though he is the crown of God's creation, he is still a creature the same point God was teaching man when he made him out of the same place as the animals and gave him the same food to eat as the animals. It's the same lesson that God is teaching man when he made him outside of the garden and then put him in the garden. God is everywhere building in these safeguards so that man will remember, I am just a creature. I am exalted, but I am humbled. I am insufficient. I do not have in myself what it takes to fulfill. Adam could not in himself have what it takes to fulfill God's demands. He needed Eve. He's a creature. God is, isn't that beautiful? I mean, think after the fall how much marriage teaches us about our creatureliness and our sinfulness and our fallenness. But even in a state of perfection, marriage was teaching them about their creatureliness as well as the fact that they were image bearers. So God's purpose is to teach the man and the woman that they are created with exaltation and with humility, and in that sense, humiliation. But I think if we only looked at this passage atomistically, if we, if we said, well, what does Genesis 2, 18 through 25 mean? In Genesis 2, 18 through 25, we would miss the big purpose of the creation of woman and the institution of marriage and why the Bible opens with this and why this is the crowning feature and why this is the pinnacle of what God does. If that's it, if we don't read this in redemptive history and we don't go and do what the apostles did and go to Ephesians chapter 5 like Paul does and essentially says, why husbands and wives? Because it's a picture, it's a type of Christ and the church. It shows forth the union of Christ and the church. The marital union only exists because God wanted his people to understand more the union that they would have with the Redeemer. That, it is, that, is, the, that is the big purpose. In fact, Jonathan Edwards made the famous statement um, 
when he was reflecting on the creation of the world, uh, Edwards made that great statement that um, he said, the spouse of the Son of God, the Lamb's wife, is that for which all the universe was made. Heaven and earth were created that the Son of God might be complete in a spouse. God created the world for his Son that he might prepare a spouse or bride for him to bestow his love upon so that the mutual joys between the bride and the bridegroom are the end of creation. The Bible will say that all things, everything was made through Christ and for Christ. That means that marriage was instituted by God, originated from God, and all those purposes at original creation were in some way going to teach God's people, God's plan was to teach us about the union between the heavenly bridegroom, Jesus, and his church. It's for this reason that the Bible opens with marriage. The middle of the scriptures, at the fullness of time, Jesus begins his ministry at a wedding. I don't think that's arbitrary. I don't think he's there at the wedding just by chance. He is the bridegroom. Two chapters later, John, one chapter later, John will say, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's speaking about Jesus. He is the heavenly bridegroom. He is the last Adam. We need to take Romans 5, 12 through 21, the first and last Adam. We need to take 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 22, and 41 through 44, and we need to read Genesis 2 through that lens. That's what God would intend for us to do. The last Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, the Son of God, created the world, and the Father created it through him so that he would get a bride. And you know how I can tell you this is because there's no marriage in heaven. If marriage was the end in itself, you would have marriage in heaven. Jesus said, the Lord of heaven said, there is no marriage. They are not married. They are not given in marriage. He is saying marriage runs its course, serves its purpose. God uses it in time and space, in redemptive history, and that ultimately, and this is the beautiful part, there is one final wedding. The Bible opens with a wedding. Jesus starts his ministry with a wedding. And the Bible closes with the church, the bride, coming down out of heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband, John says. And she comes down, I think, to the new earth in the consummation, and there's going to be a glorious wedding of the Lamb. There's going to be a, a, an even greater consummation and more glorious ceremony. When Adam said, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, it's fascinating. The Apostle Paul actually takes that language out of Genesis 2, and he says that we are bone of Jesus' bone, and we are flesh of his flesh. Paul explicitly does that. He is telling us that we belong to the second Adam. This, by the way, is a word for widows and singles. Um, the Bible says marriage is good, marriage is the norm. The Bible says singleness is better. Most of us are like, no, it's not. <laughs> how, could, how could singleness be better? But Paul says, I wish you could be like me. I wish, and the Lord Jesus was single. The second Adam, the last Adam, was single. He didn't have a wife. Marriage is good. It's the norm. But God has preserved a bride for himself made up of married couples and made up of singles and made up of widows, made up of divorcees, 
made up of those who have been abandoned and rejected, but who have embraced the Lord Jesus, have come to a better heavenly husband. I said this week to someone who was struggling with why she can't find a godly man, I said, you have a man in the God-man who loves you more than any man will ever love you. That's the truest and realest thing. You've got to fight for that. You've got to fight to believe that. You can say, well, that doesn't fix the problem. It does fix the problem. Only those that have tasted the love of Jesus know that that fixes the problem because you'll never love your spouse like you should. Husbands never, especially after the fall, will ever, ever. Adam didn't love his wife before the fall. He fell. (laughs) It ruined the relationship. The marriage almost fell apart in the garden. They started blaming each other. The fights, the bickering, the bitterness, the hostility, and what should have been the greatest blessing. After the fall, our marriages so desperately need the Lord Jesus as the center of them. I think back to our own wedding, and the man who preached our wedding sermon looked out at a a large group of people who many of whom did not know the Lord, and he said, you know, many of you, many of you have loved each other the way Nick and Anna love each other, and you're not together anymore, and you don't anymore. And the point was that after the fall, we need the heavenly bridegroom to be the center of our marriages. We need marriages where we're quick to repent, and we know that we're going to have sin in our marriages, and those who are wrestling with loneliness and singleness have, have a better portion in the Lord Jesus. He is the heavenly bridegroom. He is the all-satisfying bridegroom. His love is better than the love of any man or any woman. The love of Jesus, the dying love of Jesus, he laid down his life for his bride. Now, I think it's interesting. There's a, there's a, little, there's a little picture here, I think, and all through church history, theologians have pointed this out, that there seems to be something of a parallel between Eve being taken out of the side of Adam, that God put him to sleep, and that he went in and he, he opened the flesh from the side of Adam, and he took the rib and he made the woman, and the woman came out of man. And theologians throughout church history have pointed out that in the piercing of the side of the second Adam, God putting him to sleep by putting him to death, God brings a bride to the Lord Jesus. Adam awakes, and he's presented with his bride. Jesus comes out of the tomb. Thomas Goodwin, Jonathan Edwards, Tertullian, lots of theologians. I I think this is intentional, that God takes a bride out of the blood and the water of the side of the Son of God. That's how he betrothes you to himself. How How do I get into union with the Lord Jesus? How do I get into that marriage? How do I get into him? How do I find fulfillment in him alone? How do I find that I can fulfill my purposes here in this fallen world with Jesus? It's through his sufferings. It's through what he does on the cross. He accomplishes it. God the Father brings a bride to his son. He brings the church to his son. He washes the church with the water of his word. The water that flows out of his side is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And he washes his people. Oh, that Jesus would wash us with his word and by his spirit. Every day of our life, we need Jesus to wash us. Our minds are so polluted with sin and trash. Our hearts long for base and filthy and weak and empty things 
instead of longing for him. But he says, come and I'll, I'll wash you. I'll cleanse you. I'll forgive you. I'm here. I love you. I've loved you with an everlasting love. I've loved you to the end. Jesus loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the end. I think it's, I think it's those that understand the love of Jesus who feel their need for him the best, the most, who understand the analogy of the bride and the bridegroom the best. I know theologians who are very well known who run in circles in which I run. One I've respected for many years, much, much older, who said to me, to think of Jesus as the bridegroom kissing his bride is perverse. Either that's a man that doesn't know the sinfulness of his heart and doesn't get that there are analogies in the Bible, or a man that's denying what the Bible explicitly teaches. You know who, you know who sees their need for the heavenly bridegroom? Sinners. Not, not just people who say, yeah, we're really sinful, we're really bad, yeah, I know we're really bad, but feel their sin. And they see his pierced side. And they say, that side was pierced for me to become a new creation. I love that hymn. Um, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. I want to say this this morning. If you get that, you get everything. That's it. If you don't get that, you get nothing. If you do not get what it is to have Jesus as the bridegroom of your soul, you get nothing. You will never get fulfillment. You will never get satisfaction. You will never get protection. You will never walk in the garden in paradise forever. If you get Jesus as the bridegroom, if you come to him, if you respond to his call to come and to be part of that anticipation, the great crowd that's waiting for that wedding feast. Oh, my friends, what that's going to be like on that day, the joy when God the Father takes the completed bride, all the elect washed in the blood of the Lamb, now made spiritual virgins to God and presents the church to his son. That's what's, that's what's coming. That's what, that's what everything is moving to. Every, meaning, every menial, hard, Difficult, perplexing thing that happens in your life is part of the puzzle of God guiding history to the wedding of the Lamb. And I know, it doesn't make sense how. But on that day, you're going to see everything God was doing in washing his bride, in presenting her to Christ. I do want to make a couple applications here as we close briefly. Because... Though that is the greater need and the bigger need, and we don't want to leave this place and miss that, um, if you are in a marital relationship, we are to labor. We don't, we don't just say, oh, I'm really sinful, yeah, and then I'm going to be a jerk to my wife. <laughs> we are to labor to grow in Christ-likeness. Men, to our wives, we are to labor. Yes, we're going to fail miserably, but we are to keep fighting and laboring and praying to be the man Jesus loved his life, loved his, his bride, his church, and he gave his life for her. There's not a man in this room that has ever done that to the degree that we are supposed to do that. 
None of us have done that to the degree that we're supposed to do that. And wives, you are to honor and respect and love and cherish and want to help your husband. You want to come alongside him as a helper. You know, God uses that term. I don't know if you know that, that God often says he's the helper of his people. It's the same word in Hebrew, that a suitable helpmate, that as God helps us, women are to help their husbands. Um, I hope that you will meditate on the fact that God originated this beautiful institution and he invested it with all this purpose to teach you more about your need for the Savior and more about his glories and more about how he alone can fulfill you and can complete you and that he wants you to be part of his bride that he lavishes his love on and that he then wants us to have marriages that reflect that. He wants us to labor to have marriages that reflect that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge how miserably we who are married have failed to love our spouses as you have commanded us, and we pray that you would give us um, forgiving grace and pardoning grace this morning in Christ. We pray that you would give us um, transforming grace this morning in Christ to love our spouses as we ought. We pray for those in this congregation that may be single or widowed, that you would comfort them with the knowledge that they have a better and a more glorious lover in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that you would make all of us long for that wedding day, that the, the desire and the longing of our hearts would be to be with you, Lord Jesus, the heavenly bridegroom, that we would be delighting in your majesty and your beauty and your glory and your splendor and your wisdom and your power and your, your excellence. We pray, our God, that you would take these things and send your spirit to work them in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.